Welcome back, everybody, to Go Help Yourself, a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less. I'm Lisa Linky. Misty Stinnett is still across from me in Zoom, sitting... Sup, y'all. Yes, gorgeously in her um, closet. My closet throne. Her high-tech recording studio of her closet. Today, because my internet is terrible, I'm on my couch. So I apologize in advance for any ambient sounds you might hear. Um, I've already taken one gnaw toy away from Zoe. And so she's desperately trying to get to it. Wait, who's Zoe? Who's Zoe, Lisa? My landlord. uh, She was gnawing on a bone. (laughs) And I took it away from her because... I said, I'm recording. I am utterly delighted with where this bit has gone. Thank you. Great. And now she's just staring at me in her pink kerchief. Okay. (laughs) Um, What, if you're tuning in for the first time, welcome. Welcome here. Welcome here. Uh, And if you're a longtime loyal listener, welcome. Welcome Um, back. Welcome back. If you are uh, not sure what we're doing here, Quite frankly, neither are we. But what we're aiming to do is each week we're aiming to bring you a review of a popular self-help book or maybe a new self-help book or maybe a just a, a diamond in the rough or maybe just a turd that's <laughs> trying to make itself look like a diamond. But in any case, we're going to read the book and present to you in under an hour the highs, the lows, the tips, the tricks, the thither and yawns, all of oh. the main points. <laughs> oh. I wasn't expecting that one. You're welcome. The main things that you need to know so that you'll know whether or not it's a good investment of your time and money. And if you'd like to support the author and, and learn more about it, because we can't cover everything in an hour. In or, no. Or can we? <laughs> or can we? Um, Some books and, are so uh, short that it's like, just go listen to the book. <laughs> It's a thimble. It's a thimbleful, and we stretch it for 45 minutes. Um, but also, you'll know if it's a flaming pile of do- garbage dumpsters, uh, not just one dumpster fire, but a pile of dumpster fires, and you should avoid it at all costs. And um, that's what we do. We also cuss, uh, and then we follow up on mini-sodes the following Tuesday uh, with some homework and some supplemental information. So, like, we're here on this long-time journey for you. Maybe you have been craving self-help, but you don't know where to start, or there's too many, or you don't want to be the person who looks like you're reading a self-help book on the train. Um, Or maybe somebody in your family is like, you need help. And you're like, fuck you, Aunt Susan. But in either case, we're here to support you and um, help give you all of that like self-help altering perspective and advice that you've been craving, that somebody's been craving for you, or that maybe you're just dabbling your toe in for the first time. And we say, come on in, the water's fine. Just dipping it in. And as you can hear, this is episode, who can know, 159, 160. And, and, and I can know because I have a master spreadsheet in front of me. It's 159. Um, <laughs> as you can tell, we are amazing people and this self all this self-help has really eradicated our flaws enlightened us you might say we're without fault of any kind and completely evolved that was a terrible hand fart is that better 
Yes, on brand. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome all new listeners. So I am so excited to bring you this book this week. Oh, and by the way, Lisa tends to come at self-help with a pretty strong side eye. I fucking hate it. And I love it. I love it. She loves it so much. There's an R in there. I am bringing you a book I've heard about for such a long time, but just never, I don't know. It just didn't make its way into my brain until now. And I'm so excited about this book. I am bringing you The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. I read the first edition, which was originally published in 2002, but there is an updated edition as of 2012. And y'all, I read, read this book. I'm holding the hard copy in my hot little hands. I see that. Thank you. I'm very proud. Normally, I listen to audiobooks because I'm more of an auditory learner. I'm a multitasker. I'm like, who has time to sit down for six hours this week and read a book? Well, guess what? This is the new me. So, pandemic Patty has time for books. Thank you. You know what? I like pandemic Penny. Thank you. I like that better. Pandemic Pandemic Pat has time for books. Yes. Uh, Pinch a penny, save a penny. You all know the saying. I don't need to say it. That's right. Okay. So, the current prices of the book hardcover. Nope. Paperback. It's not that kind of book. <laughs> not kind of book. The paperback is twelve dollars and fifteen cents. Yes. The Kindle's nine ninety nine. Audiobook is only four eighty seven, and the on the OverDrive app, it's free. So this was gifted to me by my friend Tom. Thank you, Tom, for gifting this to me two years ago. So, Thank you, Tom. It so totally took a pandemic for me to find the time. That tracks. I'm not even going to pretend that that's. You're doing great. You don't normally it's bad. read books, but it's perfect. You're doing, you're, yeah. I love what you're doing. Who can read? Certainly not the host of a self-help book podcast. Okay. So this is from, this is about the author, a little bit from Wikipedia and a little bit from his own website, which is stephenpressfield.com. Love it. Stephen Pressfield was born on September, 1943. And he is, and you know what day that is, and he's an American author of historical fiction, nonfiction, and screenplays. Pressfield was an advertising copywriter, school teacher, tractor trailer driver, bartender, oil field roustabout, attendant in a mental hospital, fruit picker in Washington State, and screenwriter. His struggles to make a living as an author, including the period when he was homeless and living out of the back of his car, are detailed in his book, The War of Art. Side note. They're not detailed. They're just quick anecdotes. Uh, back to the text. Pressfield graduated from Duke University. <laughs> I love how hard I'm making Lisa laugh. Pressfield graduated from Duke University in 1965. <laughs> I have to block your face from the screen because you're making me laugh. And in 1966, he joined the Marine Corps. Okay. Pressfield's first book, The Legend of Bagger Vance, was published in 1995. Okay, The Legend of Bagger Vance, (laughs) starring Will Smith and Matt Damon. Yeah, it was made into a 2000 film of the same name, directed by Robert Redford, starring Will Smith, Charlize Theron, and Matt Damon. I want to say Will Smith, Charlize Theron, and Matt Damon. His second novel, Gates of Fire, in 1998... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Did you know that my dad, Chuck Linky, was a college professor? 
he's he was he he is no more. He's still of living. Finance, he's no longer a college finance. professor of finance. And they asked him to read the names at the graduation. No, no, no. He was like, you don't want me to do that. And they were like, yeah, come on. It's a small class of like, you know, and he was like, okay. And he did it once because no joke, he is terrible at sight reading names. <laughs> like he literally was like, Will Smythe. And they were like, that's Smith or Will Smythe. That's Smith with an E. Uh, yeah, yep. he'd be like yeah. Matt Damon, and they're like, that's yeah. Matt Damon. Like, what are yeah. you doing? And then he's like, and Nadelle Dazim. Yeah. <laughs> oh, if he would have had Adina Menzel, he would have quit. He would have walked off the stage in the middle of the ceremony. <laughs> he just he goes, nope, and he lies face down on the stage. <laughs> okay. That's how planking started. <laughs> you guys, your dad started planking. My friend Brian, whom I I invoke on the podcast all the time, we were taking a socially distanced walk last weekend, and he was like, my dad straight up told me that he invented that's what she said in the 1970s. And he's like, no, you didn't. No, you did not. <laughs> You're telling me that in the history of time, in the annals of time, no other man heard, is it in? And, and thought to say, that's what your wife said. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. I know. I know. Um, okay. So Stephen Pressfield's second novel, Gates of Fire, is about the Spartans and the Battle of Thermopylae. It is, it was so good and historically accurate that it is taught at the U.S. Military Academy, the United States Naval Academy, and the Marine Corps Basic School at Quantico. So he's like, he he's also been featured on a couple episodes of TV as a historian, even though that's not technically his his degree or his craft. And I and I read, oh, this was so lovely. Where did I read this? He was made an honorary citizen of Greece oh, because, because of, of his, the work. The book? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I it? love a good Euro. Can I please be made an honorary citizen of Greece? Listen, keep up this work on the podcast, and I think it's just a matter of time. My hair is so greasy. Can I be made an honorary citizen of Greece? No, that's how your dad would say it. We're heading out to Athens, greasy, for vacation. Okay, so, and this is from, this is part of his biography from Stephen Lee's <laughs> just like writhing on the couch, you guys. In, in one of our recent minisodes, I said that after every time I fumble, I always go, nope. And then I started again and I said I was going to, I was going to start saying, yep, when I say things correctly. So I'm just going to go, yep. But also you like move your head across your shoulders as you say it. Listen, in this global pandemic, we have to celebrate the small wins. Okay. I'm having more fun than I've had in like nine weeks. So let's do it. This is from his website, stephenpressfield.com, and Stephen is spelled with a V. You're welcome. He says, I wrote for 17 years before I earned my first penny, a three, a $3,500 option on a screenplay that was never produced. I wrote for 27 years before I got my first novel published, The Legend of Bagger Vance. During that time, I worked 21 different jobs in 11 states. I taught school. I drove tractor trailers. I worked in advertising and as a screenwriter in Hollywood. I worked on offshore oil rigs. I picked fruit as a migrant worker. For one season, I lived in a house that had no power, no water, no doors, no, no windows, where rent was $15 a month. All during this time, I was writing. 
Why do I tell you this? Because this site is about you learning from my mistakes. It's about you avoiding the dead ends I drove myself into before I found myself as a writer. Why am I telling you this? Because the war of art is not about genius. It's about work. We can't control the level of talent we've been given. We have no control over the nature of our gift. What we can control is our self-motivation, our self-discipline, our self-validation, and our self-reinforcement. We can control how hard and how smart we work. Number one, talent is bullshit. And number two, the work is everything. Yeah. So already, who's loving this? (laughs) I am. So... As far as what the cover looks like, honestly, it does not do the book justice. It looks like an intern made it on a week-long free trial of Microsoft Paint. It's white with black and red text and a picture of a flower growing out of a brick cube, a concrete block. Who can know? Just take the metaphor and be grateful. Okay, so... As far as uh, its page count, the edition I read was 165 pages, but there's an updated edition that is 190 pages, and now I am so curious what those extra 25 pages say. It's just clip art. That's it. It's just avant-garde. When I first picked it up, I immediately liked it, and I loved the short chapters. So some of them are literally only a paragraph long. It's like he has a heading about what the topic is he's writing about and then his thoughts on it. Some are five pages. Some are just a paragraph. It's really a very quick read. It also has a foreword by Robert McKee, who is famously known for being a story guru um, and has a book called Story that is taught in like most writing programs. So just so you know, Although Stephen Pressfield is a writer, and there are a lot of things that are specific to writers in this book, it really is for anyone who wants to be a master of their craft. Athletes, singers, painters, architects, you know, whatever gets you fired up and gets you in flow, this book is for you. So the book has no table of contents, but it is broken into three books, as he calls them. Book one, Resistance, Defining the Enemy. Book two, combating resistance, turning pro. Book three, beyond resistance, the higher realm. So what I have done is just flagged passages in each that felt Mm -hmm. like they were really relevant and hopefully it will resonate with you and it will offer a lot of value. But if you like what you're hearing, there's so much more to this book, even though this is going to be a packed episode. That I own this book. It's on my Kindle. I've owned it for about seven years. Um, hmm. and I've never gotten through book one. <laughs> That's okay. Sounds like you're having a lot of resistance. We'll deal with that. Yeah. So what I know, there's a secret that real writers know that wannabe writers don't. And the secret is this. It's not the writing part. That's hard. What's hard is sitting down to write. What keeps us from sitting down is resistance. It's like people say the hardest part of yoga is just getting on the mat. Mm hmm. I disagree. The hardest part is the 12-minute plank. Okay. So, the unlived life. Have you ever brought home a treadmill and let it gather dust in the attic? Ever quit a diet, a course of yoga, a meditation practice? Have you ever bailed out on a call to embark upon a spiritual practice, dedicate yourself to a humanitarian calling, or commit your life to the service of others? Late at night, have you experienced a vision of the person you might become, the work you could accomplish, the realized being you were meant to be? Are you a writer who doesn't write, a painter who doesn't paint, an entrepreneur who never starts a venture? Then you know what resistance is. Here are some of resistance's greatest hits. Mm -hmm. 
The following is a list in no particular order of those activities that most commonly, nope, (laughs) that most commonly elicit resistance. One, the pursuit of any calling in writing, painting, music, film, dance, or any creative art, however marginal or unconventional. (laughs) Two, the launching of any entrepreneurial venture or enterprise for profit or otherwise. Three, any diet or health regimen. Four, any program of spiritual advancement. Five, any activity whose aim is tighter abdominals. Six, any course or program. <laughs> He's very he a funny. very funny writer. He's funny. Six, any course or program designed to overcome an unwholesome habit or addiction. Seven, education of every kind. Eight, any act of political, moral, or ethical courage, including the decision to change for the better some unworthy pattern of thought or conduct in ourselves. Nine, the undertaking of any enterprise or endeavor whose aim is to help others. 10, any act that entails commitment of the heart, the decision to get married, to have a child, to weather a rocky patch in a relationship. 11, the taking of any principled stand in the face of adversity. In other words, any act that rejects immediate gratification in favor of long-term growth, health, or integrity. Or expressed another way, any act that derives from our higher nature instead of our lower. Any of these will elicit resistance. Now, what are the characteristics of resistance? Resistance is invisible. Resistance cannot be seen, touched, heard, or smelled, but it can be felt. We experience it as an energy field radiating from a work and potential. It's a repelling force. It's negative. Its aim is to shove us away, distract us, prevent us from doing our work. Resistance is internal. Resistance seems to come from outside ourselves. We locate it in spouses, jobs, bosses, kids, peripheral opponents, as Pat Riley used to say when he coached the Los Angeles Lakers. Resistance is not a peripheral opponent. Resistance arises from within. It is self-generated and self-perpetuated. Resistance is the enemy within. Resistance is insidious. Resistance will tell you anything to keep you from doing your work. It will perjure, fabricate, falsify, seduce, bully, cajole. Resistance is protean. It will assume any form if that's what it takes to deceive you. It will reason with you like a lawyer or jam a nine millimeter in your face like a stick-up man. Resistance has no conscience. A stick-up man. Also known as... I believe the technical term is a burglar. Thank you. A nine millimeter, I wouldn't be like, huh. There was a stick-up man. I would be like, there is a dangerous criminal afoot. A guy shoved a gun in my face. My God. Resistance has no conscience. It will pledge anything to get a deal, then double-cross you as soon as your back is turned. If you take resistance at its word, you deserve everything you get. Resistance is always lying and always full of shit. (laughs) I so envy resistance. It's so good at its job. Yes. It is very, listen, it is very good at its job. So um, he also says resistance is infallible. Rule of thumb, the more important a call or action is to our soul's evolution, the more resistance we will feel toward pursuing it. Resistance never sleeps. Henry Fonda, uh, he, he says early in the book that Henry Fonda, even up until he was like 92, used to throw up before every stage performance. Like he got so nervous and anxious, which it's like you're Henry Fonda. Also, I have a, I have a thought though. Like I resist flossing my teeth. Mm-hmm. I'm a big baby about it. Does that mean that flossing my, by the transitive property, does that mean that fl- flossing my teeth is imperative to my soul's higher calling? Correct. Yep. You're meant to be a flosser. I say, follow the fear. 
Okay, here we go. Flossing commenced. She says as she just slurps through her cute purple straw. Resistance never sleeps. Henry Fonda was still throwing up before each stage performance, even when he was 75. So, (laughs) not 92. My my pandemic brain was thinking Henry Ford, and I was like, well, yeah, he doesn't get on stage a whole lot. That makes sense. Henry Fonda, Jane's dad. Resistance plays for keeps. I like how he inflated his his age by 17 years and said 92 resistance plays for keeps resistance's goal is not to wound or disable resistance aims to kill its target is the epicenter of our being our genius our soul the unique and priceless gift we were put on earth to give and that no one else has but us resistance means business when we fight it we are in a war to the death god damn resistance is good So this is, you know, the whole idea is like, this is the war we're up against. So he does spend a lot of time talking about resistance. So we're going to do a few more moments of this. Resistance is fueled by fear. Resistance has no strength of its own. Every ounce of juice it possesses comes from us. We feed it with power by our fear of it. Master that fear and we conquer resistance. Resistance only opposes in one direction. Resistance obstructs movement only from a lower sphere to a higher. It kicks in when we seek to pursue a calling in the arts, launch an innovative enterprise, or evolve to a higher station morally, ethically, or spiritually. So if you're in Calcutta working with the Mother Teresa Foundation and you're thinking of bolting to launch a career in telemarketing, relax. Resistance will give you a free pass. (laughs) So it's not going to be like, stop doing your good work to go do that other thing. Uh, resistance and procrastination. Stop talking about me, Stephen Pressfield. <laughs> Procrastina- <laughs> procrastination is the most common manifestation of resistance because it's the easiest to rationalize. We don't tell ourselves, I'm never going to write my symphony. Instead, we say, I am going to write my symphony. I'm just going to start tomorrow. Oh, sure, 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 sure. And that's how it gets us, right? Resistance and procrastination part two. The most pernicious aspect of procrastination is that it can become a habit. We don't just put off our lives today. We put them off till our deathbed. Never forget this very moment. We can change our lives. There never was a moment and never will be when we are without the power to alter our destiny. This second, we can turn the tables on resistance. This second, we can sit down and do our work. Shut up, Stephen. (laughs) Are you feeling resistance? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and of course, he is just talking about sitting down to do our creative work. He's not saying like you have the power to buy yourself all these cardboard boxes that have been building up. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. Uh. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Okay. Resistance and this book. When I began this book, resistance almost beat me. This is the form it took. It told me, the voice in my head, that I was a writer of fiction, not nonfiction, and that I shouldn't be exposing these concepts of resistance literally and overtly. Rather, I should incorporate them metaphorically into a novel. That's a pretty damn subtle and convincing argument. The -hmm. rationalization resistance presented me with was that I should write say, a war piece in which the principles of resistance were expressed as the fear a warrior feels. He loved, that guy loves war. Mm-hmm. Resistance also told me I shouldn't seek to instruct or put myself forward as a purveyor of wisdom, that this was vain, egotistical, possibly even corrupt, and that it would work harm to me in the end. That scared me. It made a lot of sense. What finally convinced me to go ahead was simply that I was so unhappy not going ahead. I was developing symptoms. As soon as I sat down and began, 
I was okay. So I already like him because he really feels like he is walking the walk. Yeah, well, he gets it. And he doesn't just say it's just easy. It's just that easy. He's never going to say it's just that easy. He does not say that. So here are questions that are not easy. Who am I? Why am I here? They're not easy because the human being isn't wired to function as an individual. We're wired tribally to act as part of a group. Our psyches are programmed by millions of years of hunter-gatherer evolution. We know what the clan is. We know how to fit into the band and the tribe. What we don't know is how to be alone. We don't know how to be free individuals. And I just think that's so resonant for what's happening in the global pandemic. Oh, especially, yeah. Yes. Just to remind people, we're recording this right at the end of May. So when you're listening to this, it could be a very different world. Um, mm-hmm. You could be listening to this 10 years down the road. And to that we say, remember that time when there was a pandemic. Yeah, wouldn't that be great? So he says, the paradox seems to be, as Socrates demonstrated long ago, that the truly free individual is free only to the extent of his own self-mastery. While those who will not govern themselves are condemned to find masters to govern over them. So that was really interesting. We can think that we're free, but if we can't discipline ourselves and sit down to do our work, how far are we really going to get? So that was really interesting. Resistance and fear. Are you paralyzed with fear? Yes. That's great. Fear is good. Like self-doubt, fear is an indicator. Fear tells us what we have to do. Remember our rule of thumb. The more scared we are of a work or calling, the more sure we can be that we have to do it. I must floss. I will floss. I will. As God is my witness, I will floss. I am floss. Okay. I'm Gandalf. You shall not, not floss. (laughs) (laughs) I got caught. I didn't know how to work it out. It was so good. Resistance is experienced as fear. The degree of fear equates to the strength of resistance. Therefore, the more fear we feel about a specific enterprise, the more certain we can be that that enterprise is important to us and to the growth of our soul. That's why we feel so much resistance. If it meant nothing to us, there'd be no resistance. Have you ever watched Inside the Actor's Studio? The host, James Lipton, invariably asks his guests, what factors make you decide to take... What makes you feel alive? What's your favorite curse word? (laughs) I love when you can tell he's feeling like he's saucy because he's like, Oh, yeah. What's your favorite word? It's like a party. When he's got that stack of 18,000 blue cards and he's done his research and he's like, When you were four, you were cast as brown leaf number three in your preschool play. And they're like, How did you that he gets his little party face on and he's so excited but still so contained oh he was great um so the host james lipton invariably asks his guests what factors make you decide to take a particular role the actor always answers because i'm afraid of it the professional tackles the project that will make him stretch he takes on the assignment that will bear him into uncharted waters compel him to explore uncharted yes to explore unconscious parts of himself is he scared (laughs) Lisa has dropped out of frame. (laughs) Is he scared? Hell yes. He's petrified. Conversely, the professional turns down roles that he's done before. He's not afraid of them anymore. Why waste his time? So if you're paralyzed with fear, it's a good sign. It shows you what you have to do. So already I feel like I felt like this book was 
kind of no nonsense, straightforward, but also inspiring. It's, it's a little practical pat and a little woo woo. Yeah. Oh, it's going to get real woo woo in just a few, few minutes. So here's the good news, y'all. Resistance can be beaten. If resistance couldn't be beaten, there would be no Fifth Symphony, no Romeo and Juliet, no Golden Gate Bridge. Defeating resistance is like giving birth. It seems absolutely impossible until you remember that women have been pulling it off successfully without, with support and without for 50 million years. All right. So now we're in book two, Combating Resistance. So this is Combating Resistance, Turning Pro. We're all pros already. All of us are pros in one area, our jobs. We get a paycheck. We work for money. We are professionals. Mm -hmm. Now, are there principles we can take from what we're already successfully doing in our work day life and apply to our artistic aspirations? What exactly are the qualities that define us as professionals? One, we show up every day. We might do it only because we have to, to keep from getting fired, but we do it. We show up every day. Two, we show up no matter what in sickness and in health. I mean, not now. Come hell or high water, we stagger into the factory. We might do it only so as not to let down our coworkers or for other less noble reasons, but we do it. We show up no matter what. Number three, we stay on the job all day. Our minds may wander, but our bodies remain at the wheel. We pick up the phone when it rings. We assist the company. We assist the customer when he seeks our help. We don't go home until the whistle blows. Four, we are committed over the long haul. Next year, we may go to another job, another company, another country, but we'll still be working. Until we hit the lottery, we are part of the labor force. Number five, the stakes for us are high and real. This is about survival, feeding our families, educating our children. It's about eating. Number six, we accept remuneration for our labor. We're not here for fun. We work for money. Number seven, we do not over-identify with our jobs. We may take pride in our work. We may stay late and come in on weekends, but we recognize that we are not our job descriptions. The amateur, on the other hand, over-identifies with his avocation, his artistic aspiration. He defines himself by it. He is a musician, a painter, a playwright. Resistance loves this. Resistance knows that the amateur composer will never write his symphony because he is overly invested in its success and over-terrified of its failure. The Mm -hmm. amateur takes it so seriously, it paralyzes him. Yes. Yes. And this reminds me of something Shonda Rhimes says. She says, look, even if you reach your dream job and you get it and you get to do your dream job every day, it is still a job. Yeah. It's a job. Um, and she's quite successful. Don't know if you've heard of her, but she's great. Number eight, we master the technique of our jobs. Nine, we have a sense of humor about our jobs. Ten, we receive praise or blame in the real world. Right? So these are all the characteristics of becoming pro. And he goes on to sort of identify like how amateurs, he talks a lot about amateurs in this and the sort of uh, mental framing mistakes they make that get in their own way. So a professional is patient. 
Resistance outwits the amateur with the oldest trick in the book. It uses his own enthusiasm against him. Resistance gets us to plunge into a project with an overambitious and unrealistic timetable for its completion. It knows we can't sustain that level of intensity. We will hit the wall. We will crash. The professional arms himself with patience, not only to give the stars time to align in his career, but to keep himself from flaming out in each individual work. He knows that any job, whether it's a novel or a kitchen remodel, takes twice as long as he thinks and costs twice as much. He accepts that. He recognizes it as reality. God, is that true in my experience? Mm -hmm. A professional seeks order. He will not tolerate disorder. He eliminates chaos from his world in order to banish it from his mind. He wants the carpet vacuumed and the threshold swept so the muse may enter and not soil her gown. Um, so I, I had a little note here that says this book makes me feel so much better about being type A and neurotic. I've often wondered when I first started out if I'm not a quote unquote real artist because I'm so structured and careful. I love that this dispels that myth, this idea that like, well, if you do vacuum and need a clean house to feel like you can sit down and write, then maybe you're not a real art. Like maybe you're not a real artist if you're not sort of messy and fucked up and have an alcohol problem. You know, like, I feel like that's kind of been glorified, this tortured artist. But like, I love that he was like, no, we've got structure in every day, you know? Yeah. All it art, it can be made by all kinds of people. By all kinds of people. And it's an ongoing, laborious, tedious at times process. And if you're in it for the long haul, you really do have to find routines. I think to be super structured. And some people have bouts of like manic creation and that works and gets, you know, gets that going. But all the really successful people I know are just constantly working on it a few hours a day. Yeah. In order to be successful over the long term, you have to be able to grind out material. You just have to be creating content. And then one tenth of it will be workable and one percent of it will be brilliant. You know, so if that's the number, then you're better off just creating a shit ton of content. It's got to be sustainable. Yeah. Because if it's not sustainable, you're not going to get to do what you love for very long. Okay. A professional demystifies. A pro views her work as craft, not art. Not because she believes art is devoid of a mystical dimension. On the contrary, she understands that all creative endeavor is holy, but she doesn't dwell on it. She knows if she thinks about that too much, it will paralyze her. So she concentrates on technique. The professional masters how and leaves what and why to the gods. Yes. I like to call my craft and art. I combine it together and call it craft fart. Crafart. It's a, it's a crafart. Emphasis on the fart. A professional acts in the face of fear. The amateur believes he must first overcome his fear. Then he can do his work. The professional knows that fear can never be overcome. He knows there is no such thing as a fearless warrior or a dread free artist, which to me is so freeing. It is so, yeah. you can be terrified and still take a step forward. Yeah. What Henry Fonda, what Henry Fonda does after puking into the toilet in his dressing room is to clean up and march out on stage. He's still terrified, but he forces himself forward in spite of his terror. He knows that once he gets out into the action, his fear will recede and he'll be okay. And he's going to sell those cars. 
And he's going to sell those cars. He's got a new one called a Model T. And damn it, it's going to be great. No mystery. There's no mystery to turning pro. It's a decision brought about by an act of will. We make up our mind to view ourselves as pros and we do it. Simple as that. It's really when you just start taking yourself seriously. So now we are in book three, Beyond Resistance, The Higher Realm. This is where... Beyond Resistance, The Higher Realm. La la. God is watching us. Self-help is killing us. Self-help is killing us with resistance. Okay. You're welcome. It's our new single. It's dropping. It's dropping. It's called um, No One Does Anything Alone and You Can Too. So approaching the mystery. Why have I stressed professionalism so heavily in the preceding chapters? Because the most important thing about art is to work. Nothing else matters except sitting down every day and trying. Why is this so important? Because when we sit down day after day and keep grinding, something mysterious starts to happen. A process is set into motion by which, inevitably and infallibly, heaven comes to our aid. Unseen forces enlist in our cause. Serendipity reinforces our purpose. This is the other secret that real artists know and wannabe writers don't. When we sit down each day and do our work, power concentrates around us. The muse takes note of our dedication. She approves. We have earned favor in her sight. When we sit down and work, we become like a magnetized rod that attracts iron field. Nope. That attracts iron fillings. Ideas come. Insights accrete. So and this iron feelings, iron feelings. feelings. Yeah. Yes. I want to sit on the iron throne of feelings. Yeah. This felt so similar to big magic. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. And it is, I, I have definitely experienced like, I don't know where this idea came from, but I have to get it out on paper. It has to be told. It feels insatiable, you know? And it, it does, it feels like more ideas come when I'm working more often. And we could say scientifically that's because your neural pathways are strengthening and I'm opening sure themselves. Nice. Yeah. And also, by the way, so he's going to use words like angels and God and muses, but he says at the beginning of this part of the book that you can interpret that in any secular term you want. You could consider it inspiration. You could ins- consider it genius, divine intervention, whatever, but he's going to use muse and angels to explain it for him. I think that's common among artists too, because once you have a defined process, it feels like you know how you create but where does the idea come from, right? Like that is something that we never really truly know or understand. Yeah. So it makes sense to me that it feels like it comes from exterior to ourselves. And mm-hmm. as Elizabeth Gilbert talks about in her TED talk and also in her book, Big Magic, that is something that has been talked about since um, ancient Greek and Roman times that muses are described as being outside of our body. Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And this whole idea that we are, you know, and Stephen Pressfield says very similar things to Elizabeth Gilbert, like we are conduits and we, when we open ourselves, ideas that are floating around out there are looking for a way to be birthed into the world. 
And when they find we're receptive, they come and they make a little agreement and say, if you'll birth me into the world, I'll work with you. You know, and Elizabeth Gilbert has that outstanding example of how she had this very specific idea for a novel and she was working on it. It was great. And then she put it in the drawer and then she kind of lost the thread on it. And like two years later, a friend of hers wrote that same idea for a novel, but it was so specific. It was crazy specific. And it was like, well, the idea found a different muse. So as a reminder about muses, the muses were nine sisters in Greek mythology who are the daughters of Zeus and Nemocene, which means memory. I'm sure I'm screwing that up. It's M-N-E-M-O-S-Y-N-E. Nisemone, maybe? Yes, I think Um, Which means memory. And each... Muse is responsible for a- Winky what he said, how to pronounce that. <laughs> I would, that's going to be a mini sode. I would pay good money to hear that. So each of the nine muses, uh, their job is to inspire artists. Each muse is responsible for a different art. So this is a really powerful thought. These are literally the daughters of the gods, right? That are sent down to inspire us. So the magic of making a start concerning all acts of initiative and creation. There is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans that the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves to all sorts of things occur to help one that would not otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance, which no man would have dreamed would come his way. I have learned a deep respect for one of Goethe's couplets. Whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, magic, and power in it. Begin now. That is a quote from W.H. Murray, the Scottish Himalayan expedition. So Stephen Pressfield says, I believe there are angels. They're here, but we can't see them. Angels work for God. It's their job to help us, wake us up, bump us along. Angels are like muses. They know stuff we don't. They want to help us. They're on the other side of a plane of glass shouting to get our attention, but we can't hear them. We're too distracted by our own nonsense. Ah, but when we begin, when we make a start, when we conceive an enterprise and commit to it in the face of our fears, something wonderful happens. A crack appears in the membrane, like the first craze when a chick pecks at the inside of its shell. Angel midwives congregate around us. They assist as we give birth to ourselves, to that person we were born to be, and to the one whose destiny was encoded in our soul, our daemon, our genius. When we make a beginning, we get out of our own way and allow the angels to come in and do their job. They can speak to us now, and it makes them happy. It makes God happy. Eternity, as Blake might have told us, has opened a portal into time, and we're it. Which is such a beautiful and compassionate way to approach creative endeavor. Like, wow, I'm this humble, you know, portal through which ideas can come. So he talks about all the sorts of fears that come up when we experience resistance, fear of being selfish, of being rotten spouses, of betraying our race, fear of failure, fear of being ridiculous, of throwing away all the opportunities we've had, fear of bankruptcy, fear of passing some point of no return and being cast aside and having to live with this fucked up choice that we've made for the rest of our lives, fear of death. But he says, these are serious fears, but they're not the real fear. 
not the master fear, the mother of all fears that's so close to us that even when we verbalize it, we don't believe it. Fear that we will succeed, that we can access the powers we secretly know we possess, that we can become the person we sense in our hearts we truly are. This is the most terrifying prospect a human being can face because it ejects him at one go, he imagines, from all the tribal inclusions his psyche is wired for and has been for 50 million years. Mm. So there's really powerful genetic and psychosomatic forces at play. Mm-hmm. We fear this because if it's true, then we become estranged from all we know. We pass through a membrane. We become monsters and monstrous. We know that if we embrace our ideals, we must prove worthy of them. And that scares the hell out of us. What will become of us? We will lose our friends and family who will no longer recognize us. We will wind up alone in the cold void of starry space with nothing and no one to hold on to. Of course, this is exactly what happens. But here's the trick. We wind up in space, but not alone. Instead, we are trapped. Nope. Instead, we are tapped into an... (laughs) I'm going to take it back. Not only are we alone, but we're alone and trapped. (laughs) Stand by. (laughs) Instead, we are tapped into an unquenchable, undepletable, inexhaustible source of wisdom, consciousness, companionship. Yeah, we lose friends, but we find friends too in places we never thought to look. And they're better friends, truer friends, and we're better and truer to them. Mm. This feels so much like what Glennon Doyle was saying in Untamed, where she's like, sometimes you have to burn your entire life to the ground as you know it in order to reach that next thing. And it's so scary. But on the other side of that is a truer and more beautiful version of our lives and ourselves. So we're almost done. The authentic self. He says, none of us are born as passive, generic blobs waiting for the world to stamp its imprint on us. And he he sort of speaks to parents in this chapter and says, ask any parent. They'll tell you that, that their kid just came out with a personality. They come. That Linda Linky always says, you bring it home from the hospital. Yeah. And there's like, you cannot do anything to change it an inch. Like it already is what it is. So um, he says, instead, we show up possessing already a highly refined and individuated soul. Another way of thinking of it is this. We're not born with unlimited choices. We can't be anything we want to be. We come into this world with a specific personal destiny. We have a job to do, a calling to enact, a self to become. We are who we are from the cradle and we're stuck with it. Our job in this lifetime is not to shape ourselves into some ideal we imagine we ought to be, but to find out who we already are and become it. If we were born to paint, it's our job to become a painter. If we were born to raise and nurture children, it's our job to become a mother. If we were born to overthrow the order of ignorance and injustice of the world, it's our job to realize it and get down to business. So I loved that because it actually feels freeing to be like, I don't have to decide doctor, lawyer, dentist, entrepreneur. Like if you really get quiet and listen inside, I think most of us can feel that gut tingling pulling us towards something, or at least that's my experience. It's always the bathroom. You took too much magnesium powder. It was just a problem. (laughs) No, I think you're right. Linda says that around four kids start to kind of really 
show you what their interests are. Mm-hmm. And if you can kind of tune in and then help them, that that's, that's great. And I love this idea of it's not about forging ourselves into something and making ourselves into something. It's about discovering yeah. and uncovering. And I, yeah. I love approaching it that way. So here's the last thing that he says on the last page. Spoiler alert. I'm about to read you the last page. The butler did it. <laughs> I got misty. Uh, 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 uh. You got a snort. I was not expecting that. And it's just, I'm having such a good time. The artist's life. Are you born new? No? <laughs> You're Thinking made. No. No. The artist's life. Are you a born writer? Were you put on earth to be a painter, a scientist, an apostle of peace? In the end, the question can only be answered by action. Do it or don't do it. And may help to think of it this way. If you were meant to cure cancer or write a symphony or crack cold fusion and you don't do it, you not only hurt yourself, even destroy yourself. You hurt your children. You hurt me. You hurt the planet. <laughs> okay. Well, well, it doesn't hurt to leave people with a heavy dose of side eye. You shame the angels who watch over you and you spite the almighty who created you and only you with your, your unique gifts for the sole purpose of nudging the human race one millimeter farther along its path back to God. Creative work is not a selfish act or a bid for attention on the part of the actor. It's a gift to the world and every being in it. Don't cheat us of your contribution. Give us what you've got. So that is. A brief overview of The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Thank you, Misty. That was excellent. Thank you. There's so much more to this book. And he has a follow-up book called Do the Work. He has a uh, he actually has a lot, uh, a lot more resources. He wrote a few books, nonfiction books after this. So if you want to read those for yourself, they're available on his website and you can find this book at the normal places, Audible, Amazon, the free library app Overdrive, but also head to stephenpressfield.com if you'd like to know more. And he also offers a free mini course that's 27 minutes long on his website to help you get started with your work. It's an audio course that you can download. So there are actually tools on that website that supplement That's this great. Yeah. Um, tools to show how you're letting down all of humanity and God. Uh, yes. Okay, Misty, did this book need to be written? I think so. I think okay. so. I mean, you know, this this came... When was Big Magic published? 2016, 2015? Like within the last five years? Mm-hmm. So this was... A decade and a half before that. This was 2002. So mm-hmm. I really do think this book needed to be written. It, it was, it's, I think it's really helpful, especially in like small potent doses for being like, okay, I recognize what resistance is and here's a way I can sit down and beat it. And here's other ways that might come at me. Like it did help me feel more prepared and more inspired. It's definitely different from big magic in that this is a war tactician taking yes. his approach mm-hmm. to becoming an artist. And she mm-hmm. is how to invite creativity into your life every day. Yeah, she's much more gentle. Like, let's get in a warm bath of loving ourselves well, she's and art. Like, Look, if you're a mother of four, can you find 20 minutes a day? And he's yeah. like, you're letting down the creator if you don't cure cancer. And that was <laughs> yeah. your purpose. Yeah, so there's definitely, definitely a lot. There's, 
this absolutely has an undertone of fear factor, but I do, I do think both books work for different people in different yes. ways. So yeah, I think it needed to be written to, a, to appeal to those people who need a sort of a firmer, harder, scarier approach. <laughs> so, um, that's, we've, we've talked a little bit, like, that's a little bit about what the author got right. Is there anything else that you feel like the author got right? And, or what do you think the uh, author got wrong? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting. He, what I really loved is that he used the pronouns he and she pretty equally in the book. And of course, there are many more pronouns to be used. But, you know, in 2002, when he wrote this book, that wasn't part of the mainstream conversation. And I really loved that he took care to do that because I think it's so easy for someone to just say he all the time. I grew up just reading books that said he, so it always stands out to me when it says she as well. And he didn't need to get too intersectional about it because he was he was saying a lot of broad strokes stuff. Yeah. So it it wasn't super intersectional, but it it didn't necessarily need to be. Like it's sort of like what can you do with what your calling is to get in the work every day. But yeah, I think I think he got a lot right. It's so funny. Robert McKee straight up says in the foreword Stephen and I disagree on angels and muses in the third part of the book, but I will say that creation had her hands all over him. In, like, inspirate. Hold on, I'm going to read you the quote because I really liked it. He yeah. says, So, although Steve and I may differ on the cause, we agree on the effect. When inspiration touches talent, she gives birth to truth and beauty. And when Stephen Pressfield was writing The War of Art, she had her hands all over him. Yeah. So, this may not resonate. You know, I, I'm not religious and I'm not super spiritual, but the fact that he teed up the last part of the book with a secular, like, insert what works for you here. If you want to talk about energy or God or the divine or just inspiration from within, that's fine. So that really helped me absorb that chapter. Misty, who is this book perfect for and who is it terrible for? This book is perfect for anybody who has wanted to start a creative project for a really long time and is really scared or doesn't know how to start. And this book is not very good for people who really buy into the tortured artist stereotype, who believe that you have to like be miserable or your life has to fall apart before you can create truly great art. You yeah. know, this so so people who buy into that are going to have a tough time with this book or maybe it's great for them because they can go, "Oh, wait a second. I can have a successful marriage and be saving for retirement and have a full-time job that's not a creative thing and still be an artist." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We talked about this in the middle, but it was very practical, but also veering into woo-woo. Yes. So it is like, here are practical steps to take underneath this umbrella of you should take these very practical, actionable steps because it will allow the divine to move through you. Yeah. So whether you ascribe to that or not, I still think it's so even if you just read the first book in this chapter, the first book in this book <laughs> about yeah. resistance, I think that alone could jumpstart your creative process and your yeah, productivity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I agree. Uh, and do you have any homework for me? I don't because Lisa, you are a, a working artist who consistently shows up, works for your craft. You know, you teach it. Every day you show up to set with it when you're working and you really, it seems like you have found a way to get over or work with any fear or resistance that comes up. But 
you know, if you just, and you don't need to share this on a future episode, but maybe just like clock any areas of remaining resistance. Just yeah. get curious about it, but you don't yeah, need I to report that. it. Yeah. I also want to finish this book. It's on my Kindle so I can finish it. Great. I love that. Maybe you were having resistance to finding out what your resistance was. I think I was. <laughs> it was a real rat's nest of resistance. Um, yeah, Misty, yeah. great job. And thank you for thank bringing you. us the War of Art. Thank you. And for anybody listening, you know, I'm always so curious about your personal experiences. Did did you read this book? Did it help jumpstart? Did it not? Or was there a way that you were like, oh, my God, I finally completed the project I wanted to for years, you know, or as you're sitting in this global pandemic, are you finding that like, you're beating yourself up because you're like, now's the perfect time, quote unquote, perfect time. It's really not a perfect time, but the perfect time to write that novel. Yeah. But you're finding there's all this resistance. You know, I'm just so curious about your, what your personal experiences are with this. And you can write to us at go help yourself podcast at gmail.com. And you can say, Hey, share this on the air or don't like, we just want to know as curious co-hosts and, you know, people who are diving deep into this, what your experience is like too. Yeah. So yes. So Stephen Pressfield, I mean, damn dude. And he's now, I think he's now 76. And again, a reminder that like he did not publish his first novel until he'd been writing for 27 years. Yeah. It takes a long time. Yeah. So this is really, this is really a guy who, who can come from a place about talking about perseverance with authority. <laughs> <laughs> he lived yeah. in that house for a year with no doors, no windows, no heat, no running water, no electricity. For a season. Honestly, he should have just gone camping. Like, let's be real. <laughs> really? All right. With that. Life, life is, is abundant. Go Help Yourself, a comedy self-help podcast to make life suck less, was produced by Misty Stinnett, Lisa Linky, and Matt Sav. Our theme song was also written by Matt Sav. He's amazing. <laughs> do you want to get in touch? You do. Email us at gohelpyourselfpodcast at gmail.com. And you know, you can also find us on the social medias, Instagram at gohelpyourselfpodcast, Twitter at podcast, or check out our website, gohelpyourselfpodcast.com. And if you liked our podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes to help other people discover our show. It's really the least you can do. And why don't you tell all of your friends? Bye! Bye.